Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Louder Than a Riot. Before we begin this episode, we have a quick favor to ask. Tell us what you really think about the show by completing a short anonymous survey now at npr.org slash louder survey. Yeah, it's quick and you'll be doing all of us at Louder Than a Riot a huge favor by filling it out. That's npr.org slash louder survey. Appreciate y'all. Heads up before we begin. This podcast is explicit in every way. Even though April 11th, 2019, was a warm day in L.A., there was a fog of mourning over the whole city. L.A. was laying to rest one of their hometown heroes, Nipsey Hussle. Eleven days earlier, the iconic artist had been murdered in the parking lot of Marathon Clothing, the retail store he owned in the neighborhood he grew up in, Crenshaw. For his public memorial service, Nipsey's friend, Media maven Karen Civil helped organize a massive gathering at the Staples Center. She was grieving herself when she took the stage in front of thousands, but she had to pull together. We would like to read a letter from the 44th President of the United States, Barack Obama. sent in regarding the life and celebration of Nipsey Hussle. All I just kept thinking about is just like, make Nipsey proud. He's looking like KC hold it together. This is a letter from Barack. Don't be crying on this paper. (laughs) Read it, get it together, and just hold it down. While most folks look at the Crenshaw neighborhood where he grew up and only see gangs, bullets, and despair, Nipsey saw potential. He saw hope. And that day at the Staples Center, and all of Nipsey's family, friends, fans, and hip-hop luminaries, from Snoop Dogg to YG, eulogized and revered him. It all went down in front of 20,000 fans and thousands more streaming online. In the aftermath of his death, he achieved what few rappers do. He became larger than life. Born and raised in L.A., Nipsey was a member of the Rolling Sixties Crips one of the city's biggest sets. Even before music, he started banging as a teenager. Once music took off, he repped his set on every song. Blue Converse, nigga. Rich rolling from the dirt. Just banging my turf like Snoop did. Same color rag, just a new crib. Blue bandanas, blue dickies in a deuce fit. And Sloss and Nav ain't the side you could choose with. Homicide city turkeys, young niggas ruthless. Yeah, Nipsey never denied being affiliated. He was game, but he was also a community advocate for Crenshaw. Like Karen Civil told us, he was constantly giving back to his hood. He, he never lived up to, like, society's expectations of what he should be. Because society's expectation is, oh, he's just a quote-unquote gangbanger from the Crenshaw district. Not at all. He's an entrepreneur. He's a Grammy Award winner. He's a father. He's everything in between. And... He exceeded the expectations of what society thought. There's a lot of injustice around Nipsey's murder. I mean, he was taken out on the same block that he was trying to build up. Just one day before he was scheduled to meet with the LAPD about working together to stop violence in his hood. And that feeling of injustice, it's only grown in the last year since Nipsey's death due to a delayed murder trial and speculation 
about what the LAPD really thought about him. But the irony about what happened to Nipsey that day at Marathon, it extends beyond his own murder. That's because at the same time Nipsey was being revered and remembered at the Staples Center, someone else from Nipsey's same neighborhood was just a few miles away, sitting in a jail cell, thinking about how much Nipsey's music mirrored his own life. Everything he was saying, it, it rung true in my heart. That's where I came from back in the days as a kid. That man is Kerry Lathan. And he has a connection to Nipsey that nobody else does. Kerry also got shot that day at Marathon Clothing. But unlike Nipsey, Kerry survived. Kerry's an OG crip from Crenshaw. And at the time of the shooting, he'd just come home from a nearly 26-year bid and was out on parole. But just a few days after the shooting, parole officers came knocking on his door and it had everything to do with Carrie's proximity to the neighborhood icon being laid to rest. I took out the newspaper that said Nipsey Hussle, a voice of peace. I said, so y'all gonna send me back to prison for talking to a voice of peace? Y'all crazy. And Nipsey's name has been in the headlines since he died in 2019. So we thought we knew everything there was to know about his case. We thought we knew about Nipsey's effort to meet with the LAPD. We thought we knew how Nipsey's gang affiliation affected the way police saw him. We also thought we knew the whole story of the day Nipsey was killed. But when we started investigating, we found out it's a lot deeper than we thought. I'm Rodney Carmichael. I'm Cindy Madden. And this is Louder Than a Riot. Where we trace the collision of rhyme and punishment in America. Now, this isn't so much a story about death as it is a story about life. The lives of two men in particular in South Central. And how they each got caught up in one of the justice system's most covert practices, mass supervision. The phenomenon of parole and gang databases that affects millions more people than prisons do. I don't make you a gang member. You make yourself a gang member with your attitude, your dress, and your actions. So what happens when law enforcement creates new mechanisms to classify hundreds of thousands of black and brown people, like Carrie and Nipsey, as potential criminals? And why did California's Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation lie to us about it? This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com louder to learn more and get 10% off your first month. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Simply Safe Home Security. The holidays are upon us, and Simply Safe is having a holiday sale. 40% off any security system. Whether you are traveling or staying put for the holidays, Simply Safe can easily be set up by yourself in about 30 minutes so you can get back to the celebration. Get 40% off Simply Safe plus a free security camera today by visiting simplysafe.com/louder.
The first time we meet Carrie Lathan in person is in January 2020 at a nursing home and rehab center out in Long Beach, California. He's sitting in a wheelchair under the shade of a small gazebo in a courtyard waiting for us. How are you? I'm fair for a square. You're fair for a square? Yeah. <laughs> good, good. I'm Sydney. Carrie cracks a lot of jokes. He likes to rap and sing. It's clear looking around that even in his 50s, he's one of the youngest patients in here. He has on a navy sweatsuit, and he got a clean shave for the occasion. His gray goatee is freshly shaped up. How are you feeling? Uh, like a boat has been dropped on my shoulders. And that last voice you hear is Carrie's sister, Elissa McKnight. She prefers to go by a childhood nickname, Lisa P. Lisa's 57 years old, about the same age as Carrie. She's rocking a maroon sweatsuit, glitter lash extensions, and her red box braids are pulled up into a bun. She unwraps lunch for Carrie. That's my piece. You can't have Cannot have my sandwich. It's in my purse already. All right. I forgot. You can hear from their back and forth. Lisa treats Carrie very much like a baby brother. She's protective of him, too. She helps him eat, and she wheels him around. Carrie's been in a rehab center recovering from a right brain stroke for the past month. Have you been doing um, physical therapy rehab, here? Rehab, yeah. You sound strong. I feel strong. stronger. Good. I feel stronger. Every time people come visiting me, and people have been visiting me since I got here. This is Carrie's second major stroke in his life. And it happened right before we were scheduled to meet him. When we found out a month before our flight to L.A., we called him on the phone to check up on him. Could you tell us what happened? I was walking in the supermarket. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I crashed into a can of beans. Not the whole road down. And have they told you anything would have might have caused this so far? Stress. Stress, yeah. About my living situation. His stroke had everything to do with the stress that Carrie's felt since coming home. But to really understand how Carrie ended up here and how it connects to Nipsey Hussle, man, we got to understand their neighborhood, Crenshaw. And you know what? We got the perfect tour guide to help us. Okay, now you're getting into our neighborhood. This is 60 hood right here. But you can't go across. That's Bloods over there and the Scripps over here. Yep. Carrie's sister, Lisa P. After visiting with Carrie in Long Beach, we drive an hour to get to South Central, riding shotgun in Lisa's old sedan. Now you, you, you in the heart of the hood now. This is the heart right here. One of the first stops we make is to a busy parking lot on the corner of Crenshaw Boulevard and Slauson Ave. Nipsey Hussle's Marathon Clothing. Right here is where Nipsey was trying to build his uh, little empire, you know, and I respect him for that. We stop in front of a chain link fence around the parking lot where the shooting went down a year earlier. Hello, hello. But that barrier, it doesn't stop people from coming here. There's fans taking photos and corner hustlers hawking souvenirs. On all the walls around this mini mall, there's huge, gorgeous murals splashed with Nipsey's face, some of his lyrics, and some of his most prolific quotes. At the time of his death, Nipsey owned the entire mini mall at this busy intersection. He bought it with his older brother, Black Sam. 
And now, even through the noise of traffic and tourists, you can still hear Nipsey's voice in the air. On this day, it's blasting from a motorcycle passing by. Now, Nipsey's Marathon Store, it might be a newly minted hip-hop mecca, but for Lisa, this spot has always been home. She takes just as much pride and ownership in this intersection as Nipsey once did. Mm-hmm. When someone tries to press us for walking through the alleys, Lisa checks them quick. Lisa P, Neighborhood Crip. On Neighborhood Crip, this is my neighborhood. I'm, I'm doing an interview. And when, if they would have been securing the lot when Nipsey got shot, he would, he would still be here. All right, bro. As you see, this little nigga questioning us, like, where was you the day that he got shot? The security should have been here then. Growing up here, Lisa and Carrie have seen gang life change a lot over the generations. They got down with the rolling 60s when the set first started, back in the 1970s. Family. That's what the gang is, a distant family. And they were just kids in those early days. I was 11 when I started banging. We weren't really gang banging, we were a... A youth club. Yeah, and I guess it's a good time to point this out, too. Now, despite them calling each other brother and sister, Carrie and Lisa aren't blood relatives. Right. You know, just like we all got cousins that ain't really our cousins. Exactly. They formed this family to escape the ones they had at home, the ones who were neglecting them and sometimes abusing them. Lisa's got a lot of great memories from those early days with her friends. They used to sneak out the window and come and knock on my window like, hey, hey. We need some pillows. Lil' Mump, Carrie, Petey, all of them would come, and we'd all gather pillows and blankets. And they'd hop the fence on the 59th Street schoolyard, push benches together, and make one big bed, a sleepover under the stars. Kind of like their version of camping in the backyard. But instead of s'mores, they'd all split a chicken dinner between them. We could break the wings and get that person the the flat and the wing part, and the other person take the drumstick. You get four french fries, I get four french fries, she get four french fries, and that was our dinner. Man, that's all for one, one for all right there. And that same mentality is really the one that the Crip started with when it was first formed. Now, there are a lot of different origin stories about the Crips, but the important thing to know is that they emerged in the void left behind as black liberation groups like the Black Panthers were being dismantled. Even Lisa P. claims CRIP is an acronym for Community, Revolution, and Progress. Now, over the next decade, subsets like the Rolling Sixties formed under the CRIP's umbrella. Some sets broke off entirely, forming brand new gangs with brand new territories, colors, and codes. But then desperate conditions in their neighborhoods started to intensify over the years. And when crack started flooding in, man, gangs went into business selling it. And those territorial beefs became even deeper. As Lisa drives through the neighborhood now, she still has it all mapped out in her head. Because 59th is right here. You got 60th, 61st, 62nd. No, you're going to start getting into, they got six dudes' brims. And they got a park over there, too. Yeah, so you might go on the next block around the corner and be in the wrong neighborhood. By 85... South Central was a hot spot of the crack epidemic in America. Less than 10 years later, in 92, the city's violent crime rate peaked at over 1,100 instances a single year. As a result, incarceration rates skyrocketed. And while lines were being drawn in the sand, 
Drugs were being shuffled all over the block, and Crash Police were smashing into homes, yoking up whoever. West Coast hip-hop was steeped in this reality that Lisa and Carrie were living through. You got to understand that hip-hop can't even exist without gangs. Hip-hop wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for gangs. Hip-hop is talking about what we live. Drinking, drugs, trying to live the American dream, failing at the American dream, being abused by the system and law enforcement and the government. Without those things, hip-hop wouldn't even exist. You have to understand, we went from rapping about collard greens and chicken with Sugar Hill. Have you ever went over a friend's house to eat and the food just ain't no good? I mean, the macaroni soggy, the peas almost, and the chicken tastes like wood. To N.W.A. talking about fuck the police. Coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it bad because I'm brown. And not the other color, so police think they have the authority to kill a minority. Why are they saying fuck the police, though? They saying fuck the police because we could be sitting in front of a store just minding our own damn business. And they're trained to come and antagonize us. That's why we say fuck the police. N.W.A. spoke to everything Lisa was seeing. Their music was giving her pain and new vocabulary. But unlike N.W.A. or third-generation cats like Nip, Lisa says most people coming up in chaos like that, they aren't given the chance to nurture their talent. A lot of people aren't able to understand their purpose in my neighborhood because they're trying to survive. I need, I need milk. I need bread. Damn it, I just got a gas bill. Oh, my God, my lights is off. Oh, my God, now my lights is off, now my car broke. How am I going to even think of anything else? I have no room in my mind to think of nothing else because I'm so busy trying to survive. Carrie was trying to survive, too. In the 80s, he married and had four kids. He tried to hold down jobs like lifeguarding at the pool or sweeping up at a beauty salon, but he was already on the cops' radar. He had been in and out of jail for offenses like robbery and battery by that time. That made it hard for him to get interviews. When I signed up for the job, they asked you, do you have a felony? Yeah, I stay in South Central. Yeah, I have a felony, a couple of them. You know, they said, don't call us, we call you. So he found an option that was more accessible to him. No background checks, no applications, no boss. You know, when you can leave broke and come back with ten or $20,000 in your hand, that became habit for me. Selling dope was a habit, like a cigarette habit, you know. By the early 90s, Kerry was slanging dope full time. But that habit... And it soon became a dead end. It's because the dope game, man, it was dangerous. According to court testimony, Carrie says there were threats from all sides. When customers owed him money, he'd give him a break. But that became a liability. Now, everybody knew Carrie was getting played. And other dealers, they pushed him into being tougher and more unforgiving. I was already mad because of that. And they was 
You ain't gonna do nothing. You cause you this, you that. No, that's not what I ain't gonna do. You ain't gonna tell me what I ain't gonna do. In 1994, all that manifested into one ill-fated encounter. Carrie was suspicious that one of his customers had been cheating him, paying for rock, breaking off a piece of it with her nail, and then complaining that the rock was too small. She'd demand a refund. One time, she even called the cops on him, told him Carrie had robbed her. One of the next times she tried this, it was in front of other dealers and his customers. Carrie told her, enough is enough. This has to stop. The two got into an argument, and it got physical. You know, and they put their hands on me and hit me on the back of the head. That set the alarm off. Good try, wrong guy. That's when Carrie did something he'd come to regret. While two other dealers held the woman down, Carrie grabbed a knife and stabbed her in the back. Carrie ran away and left the woman to die alone in the street. The next year, Carrie was convicted of murder in the first degree. 26 years, which really is a lifetime for people in my neighborhood. And his maximum sentence was life. And while Carrie was locked up, the next generation around the way was coming up, trying to find their own way to navigate similar conditions. Yeah, that's the sloss and swap me right there. Driving around Crenshaw with Lisa P. After our stop at Marathon, we passed sloss and swap me, one of Crenshaw's unofficial landmarks. It's here where Lisa tells us a story, something that she remembers from the mid-90s, around the same time Carrie went away to prison. He was 10-year-old, standing in front of this swap meet right here. She remembers seeing a little kid outside on the block. You see the sign where it says Slossy Supermall? Yeah. He stood right there. Right there by that pole. Skinny little scrawny little kid selling incense. <laughs> yeah, he was scrawny. But he was crafty, creative, hungry, and a good salesman, too. A little hustler. Because he had little trinkets, little shit to give you, like, here, you can have an extra incense, you know, or you can have, you know, you buy oil, I'll give you this. Remembering that little moment, it makes Lisa smile. Not only because it gave her a glimmer of hope for the next generation, but also because of who that scrawny, skinny little kid grew up to be. All my life, been grinding all my life. Sacrifice, hustle paid the price. Want a slice, got to roll the dice, that's why. All my life, I've been grinding all my life. Look. All my life, grinding all my life. I was like, this nigga is not lying. He did that. He really did that. He's not lying in none of them songs. That kid was Ermius Ashkodom, better known as Nipsey Hustle. Over time, He'd move on from selling incense to slanging dope. From slanging dope to making music. And from making music to being a leader for his whole community. It was a new era for the rolling 60s. Lisa saw Nipsey's potential. But she wasn't the only one watching. Police saw potential in Nipsey too. But to them, he was a potential threat. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Yogi Tea. 
We know that sometimes finding a moment for yourself isn't so simple, but self-care doesn't have to be complicated. In fact, it can be as simple as brewing yourself a warm, comforting cup of Yogi Honey Lavender Stress Relief Tea. With soothing aromatics like lavender, chamomile, and lemon balm, this relaxing herbal tea blend encourages you to take a moment to pause, step away from the chaos of the day, and sip your way to a more stress-free state of mind. Find your flow with Yogi Tea. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Marguerite Casey Foundation, creating greater freedom for changemakers to create a truly representative economy. Marguerite Casey Foundation believes working people and their families should have the power to shape our institutions, our democracy, and our economy. Shifting power, powering freedom. Learn more about the foundation at www.caseygrants.org and connect with the foundation on Twitter at Casey Grants and on Facebook. How do we reinvent ourselves? And what's the secret to living longer? I'm Anoush Zamarodi. Each week on NPR's TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey with TED speakers to seek a deeper understanding of the world and to figure out new ways to think and create. Listen now. Even though Nipsey and Carrie represent two different eras, the shadow of surveillance only got bigger over the years in South Central. The war on drugs unleashed a war on black and brown people, like Carrie and Lisa. And that left the next generation even more desperate. When Nipsey was coming up in the early 2000s, police continued to crack down on gang violence. You know, if we check the stats and just the murder rate in the years, I was a teenager. And, and uh, the incarceration rate in L.A., in, the, in my section of the Crenshaw District in the rolling 60s, when I was 15, 14, None of my peers survived. Hmm. None of my peers uh, avoided prison. Mm -hmm. None of them. This tape is from a phone interview that I had with Nipsey just a year before he died. It's when he told me all about growing up in Crenshaw and what gave him that early drive. Nipsey grew up the son of an immigrant in a family that couldn't really even afford back-to-school clothes. And like Carrie, Nipsey didn't have many options to support himself or his family. He joined the Rolling Sixties when he was a young buck, around 14. He broke down his induction into the life for Hot 97 in a 2018 interview. I adapted to the culture. Naturally, that's not who I am, naturally. The culture of gangbanging in L.A., that's not... None of us grow up as kids. We come from nurturing. But there's a lack of that in the coldness you get from going outside. The world said we was wrong. But the set embraced you for who you was. You know what I mean? And that's the that's the allure of gangbanging. Being in the set gave him a brotherhood and it afforded him protection. He wore his pride in his colors, his Slauson boy tattoos, which also made him a mark for police surveillance. The gang was Nipsey's world until 2004. That's when Nipsey, who had spent his whole life in South Central, finally had a chance to spend a few months in his father's homeland, Eritrea. He went with his dad and his brother, Black Sam. What you're hearing is a home video from that trip. It was, it was profound going over there. It, was, it made a huge impact. I was different. It's me before I went, and it's me after I came back. Yeah. See, you're learning. That's great. <laughs> when he was there, 
Nipsey saw a whole country of people who looked just like him living autonomously, taking pride in their country. It lit a fire in him to build community like that back home in South Central. I was 19 when I came back, so I was still knee-deep in what was going on in L.A. when I came back. But I had a, I had a different, you know, you got those two voices. This one became a lot louder because I, I couldn't fake like I wasn't exposed to the way things could be. You know, I think it led to me making decisions that brought me into music. From then on, he was ten toes down. Nipsey showed you his world. His lyrics had shout-outs to OGs and super local stomping grounds. Look, I'm coming straight off a slump. A crazy motherfucker named Nipsey. I'm turned up because I grew up in the 60s. Caution. Patrols down Slauson. Squabbles at Fox Hills Mall. Always having your head on a swivel. Nipsey was honest about experiences in his hood. Wasn't always banging, but I speak about it openly. No shame in my game, I did my thing on the coldest streets. Who the hottest on the west? All you niggas know it's me. So tell whoever got it locked that Nipsey Hussle stole the key. But at the same time, his music felt universal. Iconic mixtape hits like All Get Right, Stuck in the Grind, Blue Laces. And he had fire collabs, ranging from Dom Kennedy all the way to Drake. Before rap, my last name was my lifestyle. And when I visualized success, it looked like right now. It wasn't long before he created his own label, All Money In. And in 2013, he caught attention from the whole music industry for his creative marketing by selling hard copies of his mixtape for $100 a pop. I laid down the game for you niggas, taught you how to charge more than what they paid for you niggas. On the whole thing for you niggas, reinvest, double up, then explain for you niggas, it gotta be love. And in 2018, after 10 years of independent releases, Nipsey finally dropped his debut album, Victory Lap. This ain't entertainment. It's four niggas on a slave ship. These songs just the spirituals I swam against them waves with. Ended up on shore today, amazement. Now, the example I said, knock your taste. That mm. means everything to me. Mm. That's really the, it's the, the fact that I got that off on my album mm. and that, like, I got a major support for this album and we spent millions on marketing mm. and that line is on it. I was really proud that it came out like that because I ain't writing none of these lyrics. I just went in the boots. So it was like, you know, it, it was it was in my gut and it was in my spirit to say that. Victory Lap debuted at number four on the Billboard 200. And months later, it was nominated for a Grammy. All that attention elevated Nipsey to his highest point. And all the while he was working on music, he had other ventures too. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Nipsey Hussle. Yeah, Nipsey and his brother Black Sam, they opened up an official storefront for their merch and the ethos around it in 2017. They called it the Marathon Clothing Store. This is for y'all, this is for us. We do this shit ourselves. So thank y'all. Marathon Store. And what's special about this store is that it wasn't on Fairfax or Melrose, all removed from the streets that gave Nip his grind. Nah, man. It was right in the heart of the hood that made him. On the same corner lot he used to hustle in, Crenshaw Boulevard and West Slauson Ave. This store, 
It was part of Nip's focus on black ownership, his entrepreneurial strategy to buy back the block. Nipsey's story has basically become a hip-hop fairy tale. One that kind of reinforces the illusion of the American dream. But even Nipsey knew it was more complicated than that. He was surrounded by examples of people whose lives challenged that very idea. People like Carrie Lathan, the Rolling 60s OG. Yeah, and this whole time that Nipsey was becoming this force in Crenshaw, Carrie had been sitting in prison for well over 20 years on a murder rap. Now, during that time, Carrie's wife had left him. He'd had a stroke. His mother died. His kids grew up. And two of them even went to prison. But Carrie had also been reflecting on what he had done. And he was ready to take full responsibility for it. In early 2018, while Victory Lab was topping the charts, Carrie was anxiously awaiting the results of his parole hearing. That 15 minutes she had me waiting in the hallway was the longest time in my life. I'm sitting there waiting on these people to make a decision on my life. If he didn't make parole, he could be there for the rest of his life. But Carrie had become a model for rehabilitation. According to transcripts from his hearing, Carrie underwent anger management, drug treatment programs, and most importantly, victims' awareness training, which gave him new insight to the impact of his crime. He also got his education inside, certificates in mechanical drawing, cabinetry, and drywall. Carrie felt ready to take on the parole board. When they asked me at the board, why did you kill the person? I said I came from youth for ignorance and lack of emotional maturity. But still, Carrie had reason to be nervous. His appeal for early parole, it had been denied once before, and there was no guarantee that things would be different this time. I told a lady on the board, I paroled 10 years ago. She said, yeah. I said, yeah. I said, I'm just coming to see what y'all gonna do with the body. What do you mean by that? I'm waiting on y'all to release the body. I've already released my mind. Carrie waited in the hallway while the board made their deliberations. In the meantime, he says he tried to comfort some of the other inmates who were up for parole to ease his own nerves. Looking down the hallway and looking at people who just came out of the room that I was in crying. And I said, look, man, come here. You don't have to cry. All you have to do is understand yourself. Go deep. Find your freedom. It is not in here. And then finally, Carrie was called back in to hear the parole judge's decision. She said, Mr. Latham, I'm glad that I can say that you have earned your freedom. When Carrie was finally released from prison in September of 2018, he became one of nearly 4.5 million people on probation or parole in the United States. That's twice as high as the number of people currently incarcerated. And about one-third of the people on probation and parole are Black. Life on parole came with a lot of rules. Your residence can be searched at any time. You can't use a knife with a blade longer than two inches unless you're in the kitchen. And you can't travel more than 50 miles without notifying your P.O. Carrie says he wasn't even allowed to go into corner stores to sell liquor. We're going to lock you up if you go in there. 
I said, if my grandchild wants some chips or a soda, and I'm right there, I'm going in. So y'all just gonna have to take me to jail. And on top of all that, Carrie also had to agree to be entered into a gang database. So he had to observe no-go zones, where he could and couldn't go, and at what times a day. Rules about who he was allowed to even be with. That means technically, Carrie couldn't even be around his sister Lisa, or at least two of his children. But I've been gone 26 years. And my daughter, she don't even know me. His daughter is in prison. So when she comes home, she's a parolee. He's a parolee. How they gonna see each other? Because they both of them are in violation. Nine times out of ten, either you got a, a criminal record or somebody that you know has a criminal record. And that's just the facts. That's, that's just facts. With so many rules, there's such heavy consequences for breaking them, like losing certain privileges or even going back to prison. And Kerry felt like he was walking on eggshells. There's no peace in a system that's waiting for you to trip up. Where one in five people entering prison in the U.S. today are there for a parole violation. Everything that's right is wrong. That's how clearly you can say it. They put a lot of jargon in there for you to sign to or subterfuge, you know, trickery, you know, to get you locked back up. Carrie and Lisa felt like he was being punished, not helped. They felt like they couldn't rely on the parole system. But Lisa knew someone they could rely on, Nipsey Hussle. See, Nipsey was known to donate clothing to people who needed it in the neighborhood, especially OGs coming home after doing time. Nipsey also hired parolees at his store sometimes, you know, to sweep up or even work the register. He wanted to give people the opportunities he never had as a kid. Opportunities that have never really existed for a lot of cats in Crenshaw. And Lisa says, despite never having met her or Carrie, Nipsey didn't hesitate to help when she reached out. They gave him hoodies, they gave him shirts, socks, tees, underwear, everything somebody getting out of prison might need. Yeah, right before Carrie got out, Nipsey filled Lisa's trunk with Marathon Clothing merch, which as far as Carrie was concerned, was way more than the parole system ever gave him. Okay, so here you have two men, Carrie, who had caused harm long ago and spent two decades wrestling with his remorse and was still trying to make good and change his life. Then there's Nipsey, who turned neighborhood-wide trauma into music and that music into opportunities for his hood. But that same commitment to his hood led Nipsey to do something totally unexpected. Write a letter to the LAPD. I'm going to read it to you verbatim. Our goal is to work with the department to help improve communication, relationships, and work towards changing the culture and dialogue between LAPD and the inner city. We want to hear about your new programs and your goals for the department, as well as how we can help stop gang violence and help you help kids. That's LAPD Commissioner Steve Sobroff. He's basically a civilian figurehead for the department. 
who functions as a liaison between the public and the police. When Steve got Nipsey's email, he was impressed. If that isn't a current statement of what needs to be done in policing in America, I don't know what is. But see, for Nipsey, this was actually a risky move. Nipsey knew what it was like to have been profiled by the police his entire life. And remember, where Nipsey came from, cops were the opposition. And people who talked to cops, even worse, snitches. And being a snitch meant you were branded a threat in the hood. Yep. So it doesn't make any sense to talk to them. Or work with them. That's not only against the code of hip-hop, but that's against his code of the streets. There's a real animosity about talking to the police and enlisting the police to help solve these problems, right? Well, I don't think anim- animosity, um, I think that I think that there is, uh, for, some, for some in the communities, there's, um, you're chastised for communicating with police. So Steve wanted to set up a meeting between Nipsey and his management at Rock Nation and the chief of police, Michael Moore. I thought it was an opportunity to let him know what we do and for him to let us know what his ideas were of what he wanted to do. And so tell me about the culture and dialogue from the perspective of the people that come into your store. But no matter what he wanted, Steve lacked the power to set up the meeting without the chief's approval. And Nipsey's affiliation was a red flag. There was apprehension from members of the LAPD to meet? Yes, there was. Because of this? Yes, there was. That's why the meeting didn't happen two months earlier. The department was was a little bit reluctant because when people get on a gang database, um, it's hard to get off of a gang database. And when people can't get off of a gang database, when they're no longer gang members and they've paid their dues, and it, it can affect their future. The database Steve's talking about is called CalGang. And it's one of the most dangerous tools of mass surveillance that the LAPD has at its disposal. The way police have used CalGang for decades, it's confirmed our suspicions, and Lisa's suspicions, that cops run down on people in South Central, even with little to no reason. So let's break it down. Before Nipsey was born, even before Carrie joined the role in the 60s, law enforcement was figuring out a way to track people all over California. My name's Wes McBride. Wes is a former sergeant of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And I was in charge of Cal Gangs. I, in fact, helped design it. Wes is retired now, but back in the 70s, he patrolled East Los Angeles, home to a large part of LA's Hispanic population, and gangs like the Mariana and the Juarez. Every time they rolled up on someone they thought might be a gang member, Officers would fill out something they called an FI, or a field interview report. And uh, you use it anytime you stop somebody, and he's up to no good, but you can't prove anything. So you fill out an FI. And uh, If you can't prove anything, why would you fill out an FI? Because you know he's dirty. I mean, he's doing something like driving down the side street with his lights out. They'd ask, um, why are you writing me a ticket? I said, I'm not writing you a ticket. This is called a field interview report. And when you go down here and, and uh, uh, shoot somebody, then I have your name already in the description of your car and all that, so I suggest you guys be cool tonight. So let's be clear. Not writing them a ticket for a crime they committed 
but writing them up for something the officer thinks they're going to do. Wes helped create CalGang to standardize about a dozen criteria from those FI reports. Location, affiliates, tattoo, and even dress. If a person just met two of those criteria, they went into the database, even if they hadn't committed a crime. How does that not equate to racial profiling? I don't know how it does. I mean, I worked East L.A. 99% of everybody in East L.A. is Hispanic. Uh, we didn't have any other races to, uh, to pick on, you know, to, to stop. And, and the same, you go down into South L.A., it's all black population. I don't make you a gang member. You make yourself a gang member with your attitude, uh, your dress, and your actions. If you want to be a gang member, you're a gang member. Okay, see, and this is what gets me about this quote. He's saying, I don't make you a gang member, even though he and his fellow officers are the ones filling out cards based on preconceived notions. Exactly. And that's how Cal Gang was formed. And to be honest, it hasn't really changed that much since then. Yeah, Nipsey had firsthand experience with this kind of profiling. Listen to what he told Comeback Jack about it back in 2013. We got police in our area called gang police that, like, they come through and get to know you. You know what I'm saying? They come hop out, ask you questions, take your name, your address, your cell phone number, your social, when you ain't done nothing. Just so they know everybody in the hood. So if it be like a nigga with a, with a Slauson boy on his right hand, yeah. they be like, oh, that's Nip. We know Nip. By 2018, there were more than 100,000 people cataloged in Cal Gang's database. And even though the blueprint was set in L.A., California isn't the only state that uses it. It's been standardized, and now it's a nationwide tool for law enforcement, even federal departments. In 2016, California's state auditor concluded an audit of the database, which confirmed all these problems. People entered in without a reason. Even babies under the age of one were included because, quote, they admitted to being gang members. Now that doesn't make a lick of sense. (laughs) I know, right? And not only that, There's a state purge law that says your name's supposed to come off the list if you've gone five years without having anything added on your record, including things like those field interview reports Wes told us about. But the audit found that in practice, that purge was not happening for hundreds of people. Yeah, so we talked to somebody who knows something about that. My name is Sean Garcia-Lays. I'm senior staff attorney at the Urban Peace Institute. Sean has represented dozens of people who say Cal Gang infringed upon their civil liberties. Almost all of my clients, even the ones who are gang involved, should have been purged but for a traffic stop at some point where they were pulled over for running a stoplight or something like that, and the officer noticed that they had a tattoo, even if it was a 20-year-old tattoo. And that stop was then used to restart their five-year purge date. And Cal Gang is confidential. So there's no way to know if you remain in the database past your purge date. Sean tells us Nipsey satisfied a lot of the criteria that could land somebody in Cal Gang. Like, remember how Nipsey said that cops would identify him by the Slauson Boy tattoo on his hand? I'm sure they thought his tattoos were gang tattoos. And then there's Marathon Clothing. Officers have not been shy about saying that they feel the clothing store is a, to some degree a front for gang activity or a hangout for local gang members. So that would qualify it as a gang area. So... 
yeah, every time he went there, he was he could have had his clock restarted for the five year purge. Wow, just by showing up at his own business. That's right. So it's clear that Nipsey's gang affiliation defined how law enforcement saw him, and it was hard for them to see him as anything else. So we asked Steve Zoboroff point blank. So are you saying Nipsey was in Cal Gang at the time when you were trying to set up this meeting? He, uh, he might have been on the database. I don't know. We also put the question to Sean, that civil rights attorney. So in your professional opinion, at the time of his death, Nipsey was in Cal Gang? I believe so. We'll probably never know for sure whether Nip was in Cal Gang or not. In fact, all the public information requests we made to the LAPD were denied. But what's clear is that the LAPD wanted to look into Nipsey's gang affiliation before setting up Steve's meeting. So finally, after weeks, the LAPD's background check on Nipsey came back. When I saw the, uh, the chief, he said, yeah, I, we're, we're good. Um, we're, you know, we're good for the meeting. And so whatever research they did, they probably verified that he was no longer an active um, um, gang member. Steve Soboroff and Rock Nation scheduled a meeting between Nipsey and the LAPD's chief of police for the afternoon of Monday, April 1st, 2019. But that meeting, man, it never happened. Chief called me and uh, told me that Nipsey Hussle had been uh, assassinated and murdered. This horrible thing happened one day before we were going to have this meeting. Why couldn't we have had the meeting the day before instead of the day after? That's Steve speaking at a press conference following Nipsey's murder. It was the first time the public became aware that Nipsey had plans to meet with the police. But what many people didn't know is that just moments before shots rang out, Nipsey had a different meeting, a chance encounter with profound consequences. Support for NPR and the following message come from Quantacy and Associates, a full-service creative agency and studio helping brands grow by pushing culture in the right direction while introducing a new era of thinking. With a business model designed to help companies excel, they specialize in melding the worlds of marketing, content, technology, and influence. Quantacy works with brands of all sizes, ranging from Fortune 100 clients, public figures, and small businesses. Find out more at Quantacy.com. The world is a lot right now. Too much to process alone. I'm Sam Sanders, and I'm here to help. Every week, my guest and I make sense of the news and the culture without overwhelming you. Listen and subscribe to my show, It's Been a Minute, from NPR. While the LAPD had been delaying their meeting with Nipsey Hussle, Nipsey had been helping Carrie Lathan by donating him some clothes. And Carrie wanted to thank him for being so generous, so on Sunday morning, March 31st, 2019, he learned that Nipsey was at his store. It seemed like the perfect opportunity. As Carrie was on his way to Marathon Clothing, Nipsey was standing in the parking lot, something he did most Sundays. Nip had a small crowd around him, people chopping it up, taking selfies, you know, doing what people normally do when a neighborhood celebrity pulls up. But not all of those conversations were so casual. One of the people Nipsey was talking to was Eric Holder Jr., another rolling 60s crip, known around the hood as Shitty Cuz. Now, there's no way to know everything they talked about, but one aspect of their conversation is definitely worth noting. At least two eyewitnesses testified 
in a grand jury hearing that they had a conversation about the dangers of cooperating with police. Nipsey warned Eric there were rumors about police having paperwork on him. Basically that the streets might see him as a snitch. And Eric, he tried to brush it off at the time. The witnesses described the conversation as tense but cordial. The men dapped. Eric left to get some food nearby. Minutes later, Carrie pulled up and started a conversation with Nip. It was short. A dab, a picture. He said, I got you, big homie. I said, thank you. But I can't depend on you all the time. I got to depend on me. I've been doing that all my life. But Carrie wasn't done after he thanked him. He also wanted to pitch Nipsey some business ideas, some designs for a T-shirt he'd sketched up. And that's when, according to videotaped evidence and eyewitness accounts, Eric Holder walked up to Nip again. He had two guns, one in each hand, and he started firing. When I see a gun, I turn around and run. I don't stop and take a selfie of the gunman. I don't do that. Yeah. I ain't no fool. You see a gun, you run. Kerry later said in a DJ Vlad interview that he all of a sudden felt a searing pain in his back. He'd been hit in the spine. I didn't know what was going on. I'm like, what the hell? But I fell on my stomach, and all I could see was people's feet. I couldn't see nothing else. Nothing else until he saw Nipsey fall to the ground beside him. Surveillance footage captures the shooter unloading nearly a dozen bullets into Nipsey before running to a nearby car. Nipsey and Carrie were rushed to the hospital, where Nipsey was later declared dead. Eric Holder Jr. was charged with the shooting. He's pled not guilty, but the trial has been delayed multiple times. About a week after the shooting, Carrie gets released from the hospital. He moves into a halfway house for parolees. He's still recovering, wheelchair-bound, and in a lot of pain. Now that's when parole officers show up. Not to see how Carrie's doing. If he needs any support or help, nah, they're there to arrest Kerry for violating his parole. They said, gang affiliation, and I took out the newspaper that said Nipsey Hussle, a voice of peace. I say, so y'all going to send me back to prison for talking to a voice of peace? Y'all crazy. When we talked to Kerry about it months later, he still didn't understand exactly what happened. He was a victim of the shooting. He didn't commit a crime. So we asked the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, the agency that oversees Carrie's parole, what rule he broke. Via email, a spokesperson declined to tell us, citing privacy concerns, but said they could confirm one thing. The violation had nothing to do with, quote, the Nipsey Hustle incident. But turns out, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation straight up lied to us. And we know that because eventually we obtained Carrie's parole violation report ourselves. According to the report, parole officers interviewed Carrie at least two times while he was in the hospital. Officers cite several ways Carrie violated his parole, all stemming from the quote, incident 
in connection with the shooting death of rapper Nipsey Hussle. Now, in making their case for why Carrie should be arrested, one key reason they gave was that Carrie admitted to associating with Nipsey Hussle in those minutes before the shooting. Parole officers cited they used departmental resources to confirm, quote, that Nipsey Hussle is a documented Rolling 60s Crip gang member. That's when the officers search Carrie's phone. And according to the report, they find a photo of Carrie at a strip club with two other men that officers say are throwing up gang signs. We asked an expert if that was enough evidence to lock Carrie up again. The posture of the parole authority in my reading of the report is one of suspicion. Is the person who was shot, is he a gang member? Was he associating uh, with gang members? That's Bruce Western. He's the co-director of Columbia University's Justice Lab, and he studies the sociological impacts of life lived on parole. We asked Bruce to read Carrie's violation report. Maybe a group of 50-year-old men uh, are flashing gang signs because that's what they did when they were 18 and they hadn't seen each other for a long time. Is this evidence that they're actively involved in the criminal activities uh, of a gang today? It seems like it's very subjective to make the leap. That subjectivity trips a lot of parolees up. In 2017, more than a third of parolees locked up in California were there because of a technical parole violation, not for committing a crime. The person on parole only has limited control over whether or not they're going to come back into contact with the system. If they live in uh, a heavily policed community, the likelihood is that they will come back into contact. The system, in many cases, wants to have contact with you. It wouldn't be able to operate without you. That's right. That's right. And this is this, this is the context in which people say, I feel like I'm set up to fail. That's how parole officers felt about Carrie, that he had failed. So they took Carrie back to jail. But after media attention on Carrie's case and a petition with 20,000 signatures, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation reversed his parole violation. After spending 12 days locked up, Carrie was released. But here's what's scary to think about. If Carrie's violation occurred because he had been talking to any other alleged gang member besides Nipsey Hussle, he'd likely still be in jail. Both Carrie and Nipsey were trying to work within the system, trying to play by its rules to improve themselves and their hood. Nipsey had reached out to the cops, but they delayed the meeting because they saw him as a gang member. Carrie reached out to Nipsey for help, and it landed him back in jail. It's almost like the system wants to make sure that people like Nipsey and Carrie aren't working to help each other. But there has been some reform to that system. In the last year, multiple LAPD officers have been criminally charged for inputting false info into Cal Gang. And the LAPD finally conducted an internal investigation. So this summer, after years of public outcry, Chief Michael Moore declared that the department would quit using the database permanently and effective immediately. None of that data that the LAPD's entered into Cal Gang can be used by anyone else. But other law enforcement agencies in California 
can still access and update the database themselves. Nipsey's famous mantra is the marathon continues. Never stop chasing your dreams. Carrie's sister, Lisa P., says she's finally getting a chance to reach hers. She's a registered paralegal now, and she's also writing a book about the history of the Rolling Sixties. It's called Orphans of the Revolution. She hopes future generations will learn from it. I'm looking at life. I want to look at it through the binoculars so I could see the distance. See what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just want to see something different before I leave here. I don't have a lot of time, and I just really want to see a, a change in my community, and, and um, I can make it that. Sitting in the rehab facility, Carrie tells us he has dreams too. What is your next move for getting out of here? Like, what do you think the next step is? What do you want your next step to be? Some kind of public housing that's for me, where I can invite my daughter who don't know me and my grandkids over. But for cats like Carrie, it's hard to chase your dreams when you feel like you've been trapped. Captured because of all the things that are still holding him back. So you still feel captured? Yeah, in a lot of ways. You know, I have to be screened. Who can visit me? Who can't? That's captured. You look at a cat or a rabbit or a dog in a cage. People come to see it. They point at it. Carrie has a piece of bullet lodged in his back. Lingering trauma from the shooting. And he's living the rest of his life on parole. With the same strict rules as before. And of course, there's the stroke. That's partially paralyzed him and permanently affected his brain. Even when Carrie talks about his future, it's often jumbled up with memories from his past. So when I ask him about everything he's experienced over the last year, he says it reminds him of this old 60s song by the Marvelettes. They say, the hunter got getting captured by the game. I'm the game. And I got captured. And this old world puts on a new face. Things just ain't the same. Anytime. The hunter gets captured by the game. On next week's finale of Louder Than a Riot, a prison so neglected, it's lethal. We in the bitch to die, man. Two thousand two hundred, we all gonna die. Where the only way inmates can get help is to set the prison on fire. But can hip-hop help burn the system down for good? This episode was written by me, Rodney Carmichael, and Adelina Lantianis. Our editors are Chinjirai Kumanyika, Michael May, and Chiquita Pascal. It was produced by Adelina Lantianis, with help from Matt Ozug, Sam Leeds, and Dustin DeSoto. 
Josh Newell is our engineer. Senior supervising producers are Rachel Neal and Nigeri Eaton. And shout out to the bigwigs, Steve Nelson, Lauren Anki, and Anya Grunman. Original music by Casa Overall and Ramteen Ara Bluey. Our digital editor is Jacob Gans. Our fact checkers are Nicolette Kahn and Greta Pittenger. Special thanks to Diane Lugo, Michael Ratner, and Marissa Montez. And just a reminder, we want to hear from you. Go to npr.org slash louder survey now and fill out our audience survey. This is your chance to go off. Tell us what you're feeling and what you're not about the show. That's npr.org slash louder survey. Thanks. And for the latest music news and Tiny Desk concerts, you can subscribe to the NPR Music Newsletter at npr.org slash music newsletter. From NPR Music, this has been Louder Than a Riot.